Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning is from Mark chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 13 through 16. These are the words of God. Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can so freely gather and worship you. We thank you for calling us into your presence. Father, give us humility as we come to your word. Give us faith to believe and trust your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are going to be taking the month of February and do a series of sermons on uh, things related to the family. I'm going to preach the first, Lord willing, preach the first two, um, and those will be specifically on or to children. And then the second two, my dad will be preaching specifically toward uh, speaking to husbands and wives. One thing that stands out to me as I was thinking about this, uh, getting ready for the sermon, um, in these sermons we are going to be um, speaking to particular um, segments of the body of Christ. But one of the things that um, is striking is how you, re- you really can't speak to any part of the body of Christ without talking to the whole body of Christ. You, you can't speak to the arm without talking to the rest of the body. Okay, So even though um, you may, uh, this sermon is particularly going to be talking about families that have children and the stage of life that you're in, um, even if you don't have children, or even if you had children in the home and you don't have children in the home anymore, this sermon is still for you. The application may look a little different, but there is still uh, fruit here for you to come and eat. If someone were were new to our church, and many of you over the last two or three years are, one of the first things that they would notice is that there are lots of kids here. And they would also notice that the kids stay here in the service with the adults during the service, through the whole service, except when they're being taken out for various reasons. They would also notice fairly soon that we baptize infants and that little children are partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is in many ways a very strange place these days. This church is a strange church in many ways. Why is this? Why do we practice these things? Before answering that question, there's another distinctive that's worth pointing out in our church, and that is that for many years, our practice has been to welcome both credo-baptist and paedo-baptist positions, beliefs, and practices. This, again, is fairly strange in our day and age. We allow for both to, be, uh, to come and to practice how they uh, think best suits their family, although we challenge both to be studying the issue from the scriptures, We allow for this disagreement between families about whether a young child should be able to profess faith or not before the water of baptism is applied. However, we do this not because these things don't matter, but we're willing to allow for this disagreement while at the same time emphasizing and exhorting all the families of our church of the need to believe, embrace, and teach the promises of God for and to your children. We should all be communicating this one message to our children. And that is the same message that Joshua said of his 
home as they were uh, taking the promised land. Joshua challenges the people not to choose to serve the gods of the land that they have conquered, but Joshua says instead, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the attitude that we exhort all of the families in our church to have, regardless of exactly when you want to apply the water in baptism. The attitude of your family ought to be, we follow Jesus, so let's go. We follow Jesus, come along. The hatchers follow Jesus, you come with. That's the attitude we want to have towards our children, towards our children because that's the attitude that we find in Scripture. And so as we get into this, um, a, lot of the, a, a lot of our views of children at Trinity Church really stem from a view of covenant theology, a view of seeing Scripture as speaking about God's covenant relationship to his people through all ages. And so what I want to do is spend a few minutes and do a, a brief overview of this covenant that God has made with his people. I'm not going to go into great detail with this. If you want to do further study, please do talk to one of the elders after church. We can recommend Bible studies or books. There's a number of passages right here in the, in the uh, sermon notes that you could go and study yourself further. But every, all of our practice with, the, with regards to children really comes from, in it, first and foremost, this idea, this view of God's sovereignty and his covenant promises to his people. This begins, well, it doesn't really begin here, but one of the first places we see it is actually God's covenant promise to Abraham to be God to him and his descendants. He says this in Genesis chapter 17. I'll just read one verse here. Chapter 17, verse 7. God says this to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And, and this strikes at us when, we are, when we've been brought up in a culture that emphasizes, overemphasizes the individual's need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we by no means deny that fact. That is absolutely true. That you need to have personal belief in and, and saving uh, knowledge of Jesus Christ. But there's a way of overemphasizing that that misses this covenant promise that God gives to Abraham. God says to Abraham, he's speaking just to one man. And he says, I am going to make a covenant with you where I will be God to you and to your children and to your children's children. It's an everlasting covenant. This is where uh, one of the first places we see this in Scripture. And Paul, in Galatians 3, picks up this promise. He refers to it in Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29. And he says that, 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 that you, believers in Christ, you are the sons of Abraham. One of the things that Paul is showing here is that it's the primary thing is not bloodline descent. Right? He's speaking to Gentiles who are not um, uh, blood-related to Abraham. And he says to them, you are sons of Abraham. But, but in doing so, what Paul is not doing is saying that all of the family stuff in the Old Testament, that doesn't matter anymore. He's saying that what the, the natural way that coven, the covenant promises are passed along is by parents teaching their children the faith. And so just as you might be um, the blood descendants of your parents, you also ought to be the spiritual descendants of your, of your parents. And in God's mercy, when we're not, 
He brings us in through other means. But the normal means of the faith being passed on, of people being brought into God's family, is actually parents teaching their children. That's the normal way that God has designed the world. Peter alludes to this promise as well in his sermon after Pentecost. So at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles and they begin speaking in tongues and preaching the gospel in, in, um, so that everybody that's there, even though they speak different tongues, they can all hear and understand this good news. At the end of his first sermon, Peter turns and he says to the people, this is in Acts chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 38. He says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What's the promise that he's speaking about there? Well, if we look a little bit earlier, we can see that he, um, most immediately he's speaking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit being granted to those that God is calling. But that promise is the same thing as the promise that God gave to Abraham, that he would be his God. God can't be Abraham's God if God also doesn't give Abraham the Spirit in some measure. It's the same promise. And so, so Peter picks up on this and he says, he uses the same language that God used when he was speaking to Abraham. This promise is to you and to your children. It's for both. Peter reiterates this this generational promise. And so, we need to see from Scripture that we and our children are recipients of this covenant promise. What is our duty in this covenant? In a, in a covenant, in, a, in a, uh, an agreement like this, there are duties that go along to each party. What is our duty in this covenant? Our duty is to believe his promise. In, in, in many ways, that's what faith is. Faith is believing in God, that he is your God. Well, why do you believe that? Because he said it. Because he said, you're mine. And we say, you're right. That, that's, that's our keeping covenant with God. When he says, you're mine, and we say, yes, you're right. I am. That's us keeping covenant with him. Our duty is to believe in his promise, believe in his declaration, and to walk by faith then according to his commandments. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You've been saved by grace through faith. And, and by grace through faith, what does that mean? It means God said, you're mine. And you said, yep. You said, yes, Lord. And, and, and we know from Paul's teaching earlier, you couldn't have said anything else. Because God's the one that made you alive. And then we walk in the works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And so there, there is a covenant obligation to obey God, to continue to walk with him, but it begins with just this simple acknowledgement of, yes, I believe you are my God and you are my children's God because this is God's promise. To believe and to stand on God's promise then is not to rely on our ability to obey God. It's not to rely on our ability to keep covenant with him. Because if it was, we could not be trusted. It, it simply wouldn't work. Rather, instead, our trust in God's promise is not based on our ability to obey God, but rather on his ability to preserve us because he's the God who made the covenant. And the same logic applies then to the second half of that promise. 
The promise is to you and to your children. And so as you look at your children, you don't look at them and think, uh, and think I'm going to trust in God's promise, I'm going to re- rely on God's promise when I see that they're keeping covenant with God, that they're obeying God. No, you, you trust in the promise because you trust in the God who made the promise. You don't trust on the, and believe the promise because your children are doing a good job of keeping it. You trust the promise because you believe in the God who gave the promise. Trusting his words when he says the covenant is to us and to our children. So that's a brief overview of, of this idea of covenant. Where does this all come from? And I'm sure that mostly what I have done is raised a ton of questions. And that's okay. We'll, we'll try to address some of them. But I'm not going to be able to address all of them. So again, as questions come up, do go and talk to the elders about it. Bring your questions. We want to hear what, what things you are thinking about as you hear this message. Our emphasis on having our children with us in the worship service um, is really founded on this understanding of the covenant promises of God. That God has said, uh, I am your God and your children's God. And so that's why we bring them here into the worship service. But an- there's another way to come at this understanding or another, other things that support our practice in this church. And that, uh, we come to that understanding by looking at God's view of children in Scripture. I just want to look at a couple different places here. But one obvious place is from our sermon text this morning. So if you have your Bibles and and you've closed them or you're not turned there, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. In this passage, it says that there were... um, that they, the, the, the crowds, brought little children to Jesus so that he would touch them, so that he would bless them. And the disciples rebuked them and told them off for bothering this rabbi with their little children. He is important. He's doing important things like healing people and preaching the gospel of repentance. Don't bother him with your little snotty kids. And so Jesus... Um, rebukes his disciples, turns and rebukes them for doing so. He rebukes them for keeping, for preventing the little children from coming to him. There's a couple different distinctives in the parallel passages. It's it's worth reading all all three of them. We're not going to read them all right now. But in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 18, where we have this account, um, there's a striking difference in that when it says that they brought children to him, or they brought infants to him, the, the Greek word there is brephos, which means infant. In Luke's gospel, they're bringing infants to Jesus. And Jesus rebukes the disciples for preventing them. In Mark's gospel, the word is, uh, uh, they brought little children to him. The word is uh, padion, um, from which we get our word pedo-baptism or pedo-communion. It's, it's that Greek uh, prefix. But the other striking thing in Mark's gospel is uh, that Mark says that when, when the disciples prevented the little children from coming to him, Jesus was greatly displeased. Jesus is greatly angered when we forbid little children from coming to him. Our view of children, not the least in the worship service, because it's Jesus' worship service, should imitate Jesus' view. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. I don't care that they're fussy. I don't care that they're, uh, they don't listen to the whole sermon. 
I don't care that they can't put together all the theological arguments that the pastor up front is making. I don't care. Let them come to me. Let them come. And, and God also says, I don't care that they're distracting. Jesus says, let them come. Let them come to me. Don't forbid them. Jesus took these children up into his arms and he laid his hands on them and blessed them. That's Jesus' view of your children, the children that you have brought to him, that you've brought into his presence. You've brought them here because he told you to, because he said the, cup, the promises are to you and to your children, so now come and worship me. You've brought them here and Jesus says, I want to bless them. We have a really, um, liturg- a really wonderful liturgical picture of this um, at the very end of our service. Um, after the, we sing the doxology and the elder up front is going to give the benediction, he raises his hands over the congregation. This is very similar to um, in Numbers chapter 6 where God gives the benediction, the priestly benediction that uh, Aaron and his sons were to give to the nation, which was the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. And, and the priest is supposed to do that because God says, I have placed my name upon the people. When the elder up front is up here lifting his hands over you to pronounce the benediction to then send you out from here, it's, you should see God, you should see Jesus placing his hands on you, placing his name on you. That's what's going on in our worship service. He's placing his name on you so that then you can go out and bear his name faithfully. You can go out from here and be Christians in the world. But I really want to emphasize that when we say that he sends you out, I don't mean all the adults. He's sending all of you out. All of you children. All of you children that are dutifully scribbling in your, on, your, on, your, on your boards there. God, at the end of the service, kids, I want you to look for this. At the end of the service, Mr. Lecce's going to come up and he's going to lift his hands in a benediction over the church. And you need to see Jesus placing his hands on you. Jesus declaring his name over you because he loves you and he's seeking to bless you and send you out. That's true for all of us here and not the least, the least of us. By you, we really do mean all of you, old saints and young saints. Okay, so Jesus says, don't forbid the little children from coming to me. And when we do, Jesus is greatly angered. Jesus is greatly angered when we prevent little children from coming to him. God also teaches us that children are a blessing. In Psalm 127, which we sang right before the sermon, there's a a wonderful description here. The psalmist says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. This is true in in individual families, but it's also true by by implication of the church. When the church is full of covenant children, that's a big quiver full of arrows. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And, And that is something that is so if you want to be countercultural, simply embrace that. We live in a day and age where children are annoying, a hindrance, 
uh, 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 prevent me from being able to pursue my dreams and my aspirations. They're a lot of hard work. They're, it's busy. It's messy. You will not have a clean table during dinner time. But God says that's a blessing. Proverbs also says, but, um, where there's no ox, the stall is clean. Where there are no children, the table's really clean. Instead, we want our families, we want our, we want our homes, and we want our churches full of the mess that is children. And welcome. I remember uh, uh, in high school, um, my uh, science, my chemistry teacher, who was also my uncle, uh, I remember writing this down in my book because it was so wonderful. At the end of a chemistry class, there was like acid burns and stuff all over the table, and it was, it was a real mess. And, and at the end of that, he said, what a mess. What a glorious mess. And that's exactly right. We were there, we were studying God's creation. But in your homes, you're studying God's creation. You're studying God's creation in your children. You're studying God's sovereignty in your children. You're seeing God's promises worked out in your children, and it's a horrible mess sometimes. And our attitude needs to be, what a glorious mess. What a glorious mess. Raising children and bringing them to worship is really hard work. It's very challenging, it's very messy, but, but it is a blessing. And, and those messes themselves are part of the blessing. We need to have the same view of our children that Jesus does. Let them come. Children are not, however, an automatic blessing. Children are a blessing, but they're not an automatic blessing. Proverbs speaks many times about the foolish son that is the grief of his mother. We have countless examples, not countless, but many examples of, uh, in the Old Testament of sons, children, who were anything but a blessing to their father. Think of Absalom, the son of David, who ends up betraying his father, um, running a coup to take over the kingdom, sleeping with all of his father's concubines, turning the whole nation against him. David possibly is the one that wrote Psalm 127. We don't know for sure. I don't think David looked at Absalom and thought, that's a blessing from the Lord. And from what, from what we can tell, there was no repentance from Absalom. He, he died a reprobate. He died fighting God and his kingdom. Children are a blessing, but they're not an automatic blessing. And yet, God is willing to say, to make this general statement, that children in faithful, believing, covenant homes are a blessing and they are a reward. God is willing to say that about our children, are you. Children born in covenant homes have covenant responsibilities. Just like I mentioned earlier that when there's a covenant made, there are duties on, uh, for both, fathers, or both, both parties of the covenant. So it is true also in the home. Children, you are in homes that follow Jesus. And that means that there are things that you must do. And the first of them, the first thing that you must do is believe on Jesus. Believe that he is your Lord and Savior. But in addition to that, and part of how you learn that, how, part of how you practice that faith, is what Paul says to children in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And it's so striking there that Paul says to children, to, to Ephesian children, right? These are Gentile children, 
They're not Jews. They weren't part of God's original covenant people, but they've been brought into the covenant by the work of Jesus, by their parents believing on Jesus and bringing their families into covenant with God. And those are the children that Paul writes to. And notice he doesn't say, children, if you've made a profession of faith and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, obey your parents in the Lord. He just says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Because you're in covenant homes. Because your parents said, we follow Jesus, so let's go. And again, I, I'm, I want to be careful here. I'm not making an argument one way or the other for baptism or where, what, profe- what the place of profession of faith takes in the life of a child. But my point is, we need to see that Paul here is using covenant language. Paul doesn't care when they were baptized. He just says, children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. What if Jesus isn't my Lord? You're a part of the covenant. Come along quietly. You're in covenant homes. And many of us practice this, even, even um, people that hold Baptist beliefs or um, cradle Baptist beliefs practice this. You still teach your children to obey you. You still teach them, don't run out into the street when their car's going by. But I really want to. Yeah, but don't anyways. Yeah, but I don't believe in Jesus. I don't care. Right? The point is, you're training your children to obey the authority that God has given them because, really, God wants them to obey him. You're teaching them obedience. You're teaching them to place their faith and their trust in their father. It's all an image, but it's, it's an appropriate image. Fathers also have a responsibility to raise their children um, in their homes. Paul says in, in Ephesians 6, right just after this instruction to children, Paul says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is a very uh, striking exhortation that, God, or that Paul gives to fathers. Fathers have a responsibility to raise their children um, to, when it says to bring them up, the word there is to nourish. It's the same word that's used just a little bit earlier in Ephesians when Paul says um, that, uh, speaking of um, uh, speaking to husbands and wives in verse, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh. So husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and they're, they're to love um, them because their wives are their own body. You're one with your wife. And who doesn't love his own body and nourish and cherish it? And that's the same attitude that husbands are to have to their wives. This idea of nourishing, of, of um, um, feeding and keeping warm. It's the same word that is then used in Chapter 6, verse 4, bring them up, bring your children up, nourish them, feed them, nurture them, keep them warm. In what? In the training and admonition of the Lord. In the paideia, training is the word paideia, which means the the enculturation. Um, It's far more than just training, meaning instruction, like a list of rules. It's much more about a way of living. The paideia and admonition, the nuthesia of the Lord. Admonition would be... um, in, in the, the, the instruction and the teaching of, of the way in which they should go. Fathers have this responsibility. And, and so uh, one side note, one side exhortation to fathers. Um, I think we, in our church, we have a, another strong emphasis with regards to our kids on the, the necessity of Christian education. And that means that, um, generally speaking, there's a lot of hard work that goes on. 
And a lot of it ends up falling on moms because dads are going to work and moms are um, providing the instruction, whether by um, taking care of being involved in a school or doing homeschool, whatever the the, um, particular method is. But fathers must understand that you have a responsibility before God to train your children. At the end of the day, if your kids graduate and they're not trained in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that falls on dads. It doesn't fall on the teachers. It doesn't fall on the moms doing homeschool. It doesn't fall on the co-op. It falls on fathers. You are responsible before the Lord to train your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that's a heavy responsibility. But it doesn't come without grace. God never calls us to something that he doesn't also give us the grace to to obey his commands. One of the primary means of um, training up your children, and so fathers, this is is an easy application, easy in one sense. One of the primary means of training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is bringing them here on the Lord's Day. This is where they are fed every week. This is where they are trained in, in how to come before the Lord and worship, what that means, what they're doing with their sins. We want our children to come here and to participate with us as equals before the Lord. They're coming here and you're bringing them here. And so in one sense, they are under you as they come here. But in another sense, you're bringing them here so that they can sit at the table with Jesus. So that they can come and offer praise to Jesus themselves. Again, it's this idea of there's both this individual need for us to come and worship the Lord. But it's also a corporate thing. We want them to come and participate with us as equals before the Lord, getting on their knees with us. We want them saying amen with us. Kids, um, during the service, we sing lots of different psalms and hymns, and many of them you know, but there's probably a lot that you don't know. You don't know all the words, but you do know the last word that we always say and that you should be shouting at the end of the service or at the end of the song, and that is amen. At the end of every song in our worship service, we declare amen, which means I agree. I testify that this is true. And when you do that, you're participating in the worship. That's your worship of the Lord in the midst of even the parts of the service that you don't totally understand or you don't know. We want them to get on their, get on their knees with us and confess their sins. And they're looking at you and you're training them how to do this. We want them to um, sing with us. And so you should be training them during the week to sing the songs that we're going to be singing on Sunday. And yes, it's messy too. We want them to sit under the preaching of the word with us so we don't send them out to a separate Sunday school during the sermon. And we're happy for them to be drawing and doing things to help them learn self-control and sit in the service. But parents, you should be growing your children um, away from some of those things and toward giving themselves, giving their minds and their attention to the preaching of the word. But first, we just want them to come and sit under it with us. We want our children to come to the Lord's table with us. We want them to sit and eat with us at Jesus' table because they belong to Jesus. We want them to, at the end of the service, lift their hands with us as we give our final praises to the Lord. Children, you should see that you are invited here. And by children, much of the emphasis of this has, probably, has leaned toward the young children. And that's good and right and that's true. But, but this is really true for all of the children. If you are living at home, if you, are, if you came here with your parents, 
then you need to hear, you're invited here. You're welcomed here. I'm excited that you're here this morning because Jesus is excited that you are here to worship him this morning. So children, you need to know that you're invited here. You need to know that we want you to come and grow in your understanding of of church being a privilege, not an obligation. We want you to grow in your understanding, and yes, adults, we need to grow in this too, that church is not an obligation, it is a privilege. It is an obligation. We're required to come and worship the Lord. He, he calls us to not, um, to not deny or to, um, to not neglect the gathering together of the saints for worship. It is an obligation, but, it, but it's a, a happy obligation. It's a get to, not a got to. You get to come to church. That's a privilege. Not everybody gets to. Not everybody gets to come and worship the Lord and be in covenant relationship with him, but you do. And not because you're good, not because you've done things right this week, but because God has said, you're mine. You're my people. Come and worship me. Children ought to be brought up, challenged, and encouraged in their walk with Christ. And yes, this is hard. And it's hard to teach them, it's hard to teach ourselves that church is a get-to, not a got-to. It's hard to teach your children that too. Why is it, my son asked this question this week, it was a really good question. Why is it I know that I want to go to church, or I should want to go to church. It's a good thing, but why do I not want to? I really don't want to lots of times. I'm the preacher, and I don't want to sometimes. Why don't I want to? I think fundamentally it's because, and there can be any of a number of reasons, but at root, part of it is because we don't understand God's grace. We don't understand God's grace. We don't understand God's grace and we don't understand how holy he is and how sinful we are and that left to ourselves, if his holiness came into contact with our sin, we would just burn up. God's holiness coming into contact with sin is God's wrath. And yet this God, this holy God, despite my sin, has said, no, I want you to come here. I want you to come really close to me. I want to lay my hands on you, place my name on you again. I want to bless you. I want to feed you. Yeah, there's probably going to be a spanking involved too. But then I want to feed you and I want to forgive you and I want to send you out. God delights. He looks forward to you coming here and getting on your knees to confess your sins. Because he delights to forgive his people. I think maybe if we, maybe parents, adults, not just parents, but all the adults, if, if we as a people prayed that God would show us how to delight in his worship service, I think our kids would have an easier time of it. I think not just your kids, but the kids of your church would have an easier time of it. Do you delight to come into the Lord's presence on Sunday morning when you could be sleeping in? Many of you do, I think. But it's something for all of us to grow in. So we want to be bringing our children here. We want to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We want to bring them into the worship service with us. And this view really is at odds with any theology that encourages children in their covenant homes to doubt their belief. Okay, again, I'm not, I'm not talking here about the difference between credo-baptism and, and pedo-baptism simpliciter. I'm talking about um, a a theology or a culture that really resists 
and doubts and teaches children to doubt their belief. Jesus is greatly displeased with that kind of an attitude towards your children. When fathers and mothers teach their children that God is not so sure about their belief, right? If a child says, I believe in Jesus, and the parents are saying, eh, I don't know. Let's wait and see till you're 15. The, what you are doing, parents, is provoking your children to wrath. And I think it's well-intentioned. We, we want our children to be honest. We want them to be genuine in their faith. We want, we, we're nervous about um, coming near to God, our children coming near to God and not really believing. And there's a sense in which you ought to be nervous. It is dangerous. It's very dangerous to come into God's presence. But that's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus, who came and died for your sins, it's the same Jesus that said, do not forbid the little children from coming to me. He knows it's dangerous, but that's why he died for their sins. So don't provoke your children to wrath. Instead, we should remember the grace that God gave us when we first believed, and so we should welcome them to place their trust in Jesus. This, all of this, I think, raises a really important question. And it's an important question that... Um, Frankly, I'm not going to give a satisfactory answer to. Aren't you excited? And this question is, okay, but what if I doubt that my child is saved? What if I really am not sure? And this, this is true at the beginning of the journey, and it can be true in the middle of the journey. It can be true towards the end of the journey. What if I doubt my child's salvation? On the one hand, that's okay. It is okay for you to wonder or to doubt if your child is saved. And there are times where the fruit of a person's life does not match their baptism, does not match their profession of faith. Right? There are many, many people that professed faith late in life, got baptized, and didn't live like it. And you should doubt their, it should, in one sense, you should question their salvation. You should question their, and, and at least say, you're not living in the, according to your profession. You're not living according to your baptism. It's not wrong to wonder. It's not wrong in one sense to doubt, as long as, and maybe a different way of putting this, instead of doubting, it can be a question. It's the difference between doubts and questions. Doubts, I'm planning to talk about this a little more next week, but doubts are um, things that you're throwing out there that, and, you're, and you're not expecting an answer, right? I have all these doubts and anxieties, Questions have answers. Questions are seeking answers. Questions are prayers given to the Lord for him to deal with and for him to give you an answer. Doubts are things where you're just throwing up your hands and, in your anxiety and saying, I don't know. Don't doubt your child's salvation, but it's, it is appropriate to question it. But, and this is where I'm, I'm not really going to answer the question, but I want to redirect, redirect your attention in that question. Scripture teaches us that we are first and foremost responsible for our own obedience to God. Okay, before I am concerned with my child's obedience to God, I need to, my, I need to be concerned with my own obedience to God. I need to take the log out of my own eye before I worry about the speck in my brother's eye. 
Okay, so follow the logic with me here. Scripture teaches us that we are first and foremost responsible for our own obedience to God. And if God tells us to believe his promises, right, that's what, Jesus, that's what Peter says, repent and believe, for the promise is to you and to your children. Repent, believe, because of the promise. Believe the promise. We're told to believe God's promises. What do we call it when we don't believe them? We would call that disobedience, okay? It is, it's disobedient when you're not believing God's promises because God says, repent and believe my promise. If you're not believing the promise, you're disobeying because you're not doing what God said to do, okay? So if parents are not believing the promises of God for their children, before they worry, before they question whether or not their children are obeying God by believing, the parents themselves need to get right with God. It is appropriate and necessary for parents to confess that they're not believing the promises of God. Okay? You need to get right with God and obey him by believing his promises. Again, belief is not... Believing his promises, that's not a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about God. It's like the, the great evangelistic analogy of trust is, sitting, is like sitting down in a chair. I'm going to sit down in a chair if I trust the chair to hold me up. Sit down in God's promises because you trust his promises are going to hold you up. It doesn't have to be a comfortable chair. Rest in God's promises first before you worry about your child's obedience and, and this, is really, this is an important nuance or important distinction to make. This does not mean that you think your child is saved. It, it does not mean that you are, a, you are presuming that they are saved right now. You, you don't know what God is doing. You don't know how he is working. We can judge what people do. We can't judge their hearts. But you are called to rest in God's promises, believing his promises that they are to you and to your children. And so you sit down in that and you say, God, what's going on? It sure doesn't look like it. Where's that promising God? But you do that sitting down, resting in his promises. And this is the other thing that I think is important for us to remember. So, so it, is, it, is it appropriate for me to question whether or not my kid is saved? Yes. It's appropriate. Not at all times. Many times we need to remember that we're just, they're no more sinful than we are. They commit no more sins than we do. We're just better at tolerating our own. But, but it's okay if there's no fruit and if, or if there's lots of um, evidence to the contrary, it's okay to question and to wonder. But, but the response to that needs to be, okay, I need to, not, I need to not doubt God. I need to instead rest in his promises, confess my own disobedience, and sit there. And then, it also means that you then bring your children to the Lord. In Mark chapter 2, you have the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And, and there's a huge crowd surrounding the place where Jesus is. He's in some sort of a house. The crowd is surrounding the house. Um, these two uh, buddies carry their paralytic friend, and, and they come to the house, and there's no way to get in. 
but they know Jesus is there and they know that he can heal their friend. And so they climb up to the roof and they open up the roof and drop their friend, lower their friend in, in front of Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says or what, what, what the gospels tell us about Jesus before he says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven? It says that Jesus saw their faith. Jesus didn't just see the faith of the paralytic man in front of him who needed his sins forgiven and needed to be healed. Jesus saw the faith of him and the friends that brought him. Scripture indicates that God regards the faith of those that bring others to him. So, believing God's promises is evangelism to your children. Believing God's promises is an evangelistic work for the souls of your children. And it's a get to, not a got to. Okay, and this one other small thing that I want application here before I address the children specifically. Um, one of the particular busynesses of bringing your kids into worship is the fact that um, even now as I'm speaking, there's a number of moms, out, moms and dads out in the hallway um, because they're, they're dealing with their children. And they're missing the sermon. They're missing the service. And it's, that really can be a concern for people. They come to our church and they think, yeah, but there's no nursery. There's no Sunday school. I don't get to worship. And we understand the frustration, but... I think it's because we misunderstand what God has called us to. When you bring your children here in the worship service and then you're helping them learn to grow in the worship service and you're stepping out with them because there's a, some spat that's going on so some discipline needs to take place or they're really restless and so you're taking them out to walk with them, whatever the case may be, that is your worship. And your worship is not primarily about you getting all that you can get out of the service. Your, your worship is about you coming and giving to the Lord, including giving your children, growing them up in this worship service. That's your worship. And so moms especially, I think, can get really worried and frustrated that they're, I haven't listened to a sermon in 18 years. <laughs> well, you'd probably be falling asleep if there weren't the kids there anyway, so don't worry about it. But no, yeah, yeah, you missed a lot of sermons. You can go and listen to them later in the week. Yeah, but you were here. And you were worshiping the Lord and you brought your children. And that is glorious. That is your worship. And God delights in that. He's greatly displeased if you, would, if you sent them out to go to some other, some other church during the worship service. And conversely, he is greatly pleased that you brought them here. Glory. Don't think that God does not speak to you in your obedience to him. So now I want, to, I want to bring this in for a landing, and I want to address the children particularly. And again, the children, I, I am including the, the, um, the kids in the buckets, uh, and the college students, and the middle school students, and the high schoolers, and the third through sixth graders, and anybody else I forgot. I want all of you to listen to this. You are welcome here. We are delighted that you are here to worship the Lord with us. 
We want you here. This is your church. This is your church because Jesus is your Lord. We want you here with us. He died for your sins, and so your job is to believe on him. Jesus paid for your sins, and your job is to believe him. Believe in him. You probably know that you are a sinner. You probably know that you disobey your parents. You probably know that you disrespect your teachers. You probably know that you lie. You probably know that you steal from your brother or sister. You probably know that you lust in your heart for things that you should not. And Jesus knows all of those things too. You know that you're a sinner because you feel guilty for those things, those bad things that you've done. You've done bad things and you feel bad about it. You know that maybe you try really hard to be good. Really, maybe you work really hard to obey your parents this time. And speak respectfully, to not lie. And you fail. And you don't do it. Or maybe, and this is a different kind of sin, maybe you think that you are doing all those things really well and you look around at your brothers and sisters and you think you're better than them. And Jesus has very harsh words for those that think of themselves better than their neighbors and think that they are better, that they live better like Christians than their brothers and sisters. And so with all this, you know that you're a sinner. And that means, that does not mean that you should not follow Jesus. It does not mean because you're a sinner that you should not follow Jesus because you're not good enough. Because the fact of the matter is, you're not good enough. And the fact that you're not good enough means that you qualify to follow Jesus. You get to follow Jesus because you're a sinner. If you weren't a sinner, Jesus didn't die for you. Jesus says that. He didn't come for those that are good. He didn't come for those that don't need him. He came for sinners. And so, we want you to come here. We want you to come worship with us. We want you to follow Jesus. This is good news for parents and children. This is good news for old and young. This is good news for fruitful and barren. This is good news for rich and for poor, for those who are strong in their faith, for those who are weak in their faith. This is the grace of God. Jesus Christ came for sinners. So believe on him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your mercy to us by sending your Son to die for us. Thank you for making us your children. Help us to apply these things to our lives, trusting in your grace, believing your word, and believing in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.